Hello everyone and welcome back to my channel. If this is the first time, hello, my name is Martin McPhillamy, performance coach and owner of Performance Through Health. Hit subscribe because you're going to love these videos. In this episode of the podcast, I have Dan Cooper. Now, Dan Cooper was on the podcast a few weeks back and we were talking about resilience, an area that he is a researcher in. He's ex-army uh, special forces over in Australia and he's about to embark on an extreme adventure of a thousand miles in Alaska. And today we're going to discuss the reasons to why his training, the adaptations I have to go for, and of course, the journey itself. I hope you enjoy the episode. And thanks for, for jumping back on the podcast again and having this, this chat. I think last time we, uh, you know, we were chatting for a good hour and a half and we didn't even manage to touch the what you're what you're doing with your, with your next progress and what you're doing with your adventure so if you haven't listened to the episode with myself and Dan uh, probably about three or four weeks ago now we were talking all about resilience and, and delving deep into there and we had a good conversation and that's actually got a, a fair fair amount of people listen to it and got some, some some good feedback so uh, this this is really just going to delve into more of the adventure that he's about to embark uh, I wanted I wanted to delve into the the motivations behind it the training you've gone through and also what it is so i guess we could probably start with with uh, where you're at now and, and what you're about to face over the next uh, coming coming weeks or how or how long is it expected to take you <laughs> um i estimate around 25 to 26 days of the information i can get but up to 30 days or 31 days is the cutoff so i'm happy with just to finish i'm not here to break records. um so yeah at the moment sitting in a hotel room in Anchorage, Alaska, um, where I've been since uh, Sunday night. So just over here, acclimatising in preparation to do the Iditarod Trail Invitational 1,000 Mile on Foot. So I think the Iditarod Trail Mushing Race, or the Sled Dog Race, is probably fairly popular. I think a lot of people probably know about that one. And it's based off the, I think, the diphtheria run to Nome back in the, I think, 1920 or around there. So... They do a version of that on bike, ski or foot. Two years ago, I did the 350-mile to qualify for the 1,000, so I'm here with the, well, potential of walking a 1,000 miles over 25 to 30 days to get to know. That's uh, so... That's like, like a, you know, it's not a typical challenge that someone's uh, going to go out and do, you know. I, you... you there's there's a difference between the the lifestyle that you've lived and the stuff that you've kind of done um you know Pappy, he's just literally messaged me saying he's just signed up to a 24-hour marathon and like in two weeks and he's not done any kind of endurance work for a long time and it's like there's just a different mindset when you you, you guys to just go all right we're just going to do something like whereas for a, a typical individual might doing a 10k run or a half a marathon might be a like a a scary feat for them but Going out into the wilderness and you know what temperatures are you going to get to? Uh, what what kind of I guess issues have you had to think about in terms of the planning to ensure that you you get to the other end? Like you know what 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 do you have to cover with that? Yeah, so the temperatures minus sixty, um, and obviously down at the starting point, the southern end of the trail. It's sort of at the moment, I think it's like minus one, minus two, so it's not too bad. Uh, coming from Brisbane summer, it's probably a fair jump. But so I've got to have enough equipment so that 
too because one of your biggest threats is sweating because if you you sweat and your clothes get soaked, then when you stop, that turns to ice and that becomes a problem, especially sort of gloves, socks, these sort of things. So I'd be able to make sure I've got some cool clothes for those days where it is a little bit warmer. And then when I get further north, it gets down to minus 60, I've got to have enough layers so that I can protect myself at those temperatures, especially wind chill because wind chill is massive. Yep. Um, so you've got that gear goes into the sled, and then you've got your sleeping gear that goes into the sled, and then food, so you've got to work out how much food or how long you think. So you do your time and distance from checkpoint to checkpoint. So you've got your drop bags, and I've just mailed out some parcels into the post to some of the villages along the way, so you try and work out you know, how much food do you need at this village, you know, how far can you go, which villages do you want to send it to, these sort of things. Because it's a post office, if it's not open when you get there, you don't, you don't get your food. Like if you're there during business hours, then you can get your parcel, if not, move on. So you're trying to work out, okay, how far apart can I have them? How far apart can I miss one or two before that becomes a problem? You know, then the food you start with, and then survival equipment, your cooking equipment, bits and pieces. And then there's a lot more overflow this year, so it's a lot wetter crossing swamps. So you've got to be waterproof to the knee for the start of the race. And so now it's okay, well, how do I maintain waterproofing, put that equipment in the sled? Then you've got all this gear, and then it's like, all right, what do I need to take out because it's too heavy now? Because <laughs> so, you know, I pull all that stuff for a thousand miles. Whatever goes in there stays in there. Yeah, okay. um, so except for what, what weight are you? Um, what weights like the maximum weight that you wanted in there, and how and how how many hours are you expecting to trawl, trawl that like a day, or is there like a, a a range of times depending on the checkpoints? Yeah, I kind of play that by ear. So I'm pretty. One thing I do when I go into these is I. I know that there's a huge amount of ambiguity, so I stay really flexible. So I don't really get stuck to certain things. Like I'm not into, like I'm not a controlled sort of freak. And I think to do these things, you, most people probably aren't. So it'll weigh around about 25 to 30 kilos, I think. The beauty of the sled is if the conditions are really cold and the ice or the snow, so as it gets compressed, freezes up quite nicely, then it'll be nice and fast along there. So it'll only be an issue when I get to the Alaskan range and I've got to drag it uphill. Mm. Um, so it's sort of... Once you get moving, it's not too much weight. And after a while, you don't really notice it. So it's certainly a lot easier than when I was doing load carriage stuff in the military with the sort of weights we carried there. So sort of that's not too much of a problem. And then I'm looking at sort of going around about 18 to 20 hours a day, depending on how I feel. So I'll probably start out around four hours sleep a night, get up, get going, and then it'll sort of be stopped for food, stop at checkpoints. And then I'll probably at some point start moving into five hours and then six hours as I sort of get fatigued because you can't really maintain 18 hour or 20 hour days for the next 30 days and then there's a couple of checkpoints where there's really good lodging so i'll probably stay there for you know 12 to 14 hours or so get a good sleep get some a couple good meals in just try and regenerate a little bit before i move on so it's kind of a rough plan and i used the averages from all the finishes that i could get and there's not a lot of finishes this race i think there's just by 20 i think um and there's a few guys that finished it multiple times. So I looked at all their time and spacing, did the average, looked at my speeds for the last few races, which was around about the average because I've done one in the Yukon, which is 430 and the 350 I did here. And that kind of gave them a distance and then expected and how many hours I could move and how long it would take. So it's a, a very loose plan. And I would reckon within the first day it'll have gone to shit and then I'll just be solving problems as I go. <laughs> And would you say that's uh, an aspect that you kind of enjoy about it? It's 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 facing that kind of challenge, that knowing that there's going to be challenges that present, and that you're going to have to do that. It just kind of is a part of your nature to just want to be able to do that sort of stuff. 
Yeah, I think the motivation is really hard to delve into, I think. Um, because I, nearly, I nearly asked you in the last one because there was a part in the conversation where we were talking about ego and talking about where you've got to change your, you know, you've got to go from being elite to to just you know, becoming the average man again when you when you when you leave the services. And I was wondering whether this was trying to uh, keep that part of you or whether it was just something that you'd particularly still enjoy. Yeah, it's sort of it's tough. I know early on in my service career, there was definitely a lot of identity around that sort of thing. But I think that's an easy trap to get into when you're younger um, because you're still trying to work out who you are. And then I'm kind of at the age now, and maybe some of my first races were a little bit of that and a little bit of trying to push to see how far I could go sort of thing. Um, so I, I inherently think that most people are capable of far more than what they are currently doing. It's just the fact that their exposures are much less from the beginning. I think we sort of spoke about this a fair bit last time, is that mm. we do less from an early age. So... You know, when you think about your ceiling, we're, far, we're so far below our actual true potential or our ceiling that, you know, we have this huge capacity to grow. But you can't just go from, you know, being at 20% of your full capacity to trying things at 80% sort of thing. So fortunately for me, throughout my military career, that pushed me and it made me sort of grow. And I don't know where my ceiling is or what my true potential is. Um, and as I sort of spoken about to some other people, I don't think I really want to find it because at the point where you find your limit, it's probably not going to be enjoyable. You know what I mean? So, um, so for me, it's a gradual build-up of doing smaller events and then sort of getting bigger and bigger and you start to become really curious about, you know, just how far can I go? What am I capable of? Um, sort of thing. So I think through that, you just get good at suffering as well, mm. which... I don't know if that's a good or a bad character trait, but suffering is something that I've seen to be able to be sort of comfortable with. So I think there's a little bit of, you know, still trying to prove myself maybe, still really keen on sort of pushing to see where I can go and then just really curious about whether I can do some of these things that sort of I once thought were well out of reach, sort of thing, like things that I once thought were impossible. And that, that changes. Uh, I, th- I think that's a continual way to like, you know, if you are consistently pushing yourself and you're rediscovering that okay well I can do this next step it's just for the whole conversation we had last time about resilience it's just an awesome thing to be able to continue to do throughout your life whereas if you if if you were to just accept okay well I'm no longer in the army I don't need to do all this stuff I don't need to try it then maybe that is going to cause a ceiling effect to what you can potentially do moving forward as, as age just becomes a you know a part of life then you're continuously just pushing the barriers of what you can do at your your given physiological age, you know, your, your age anyway. So I think that's just a good trait to have. Yeah, yeah, and I'm still pretty keen to sort of show my kids what they could be capable of. You know, I mean, so when I was younger, my old man showed me what hard work is like an occupational sort of thing looked like, but no one really showed me what all these other areas that I've delved into. Like when I look at going into university and these sort of things. No one in my family went to university. It just wasn't well. I came from a long history of sort of labourers, sort of things that are like, you know, generational tradesmen. So even when you look at that aspect of it, I sort of started out curious about something I was interested in, so I went and did a degree, and then I became really curious about how much more I could learn and this sort of thing. And I became sort of, you know, a lifelong learner, as people sort of put it, and that's pushed me down a path with a PhD. Um, Sort of thing. So I'm really keen on setting an example for my kids. You know, like it's not about your starting point. So sort of I think it's not about what you have right now or where you are right now. It's about what you want to do 
what you're willing to do for it, what you believe you're capable of doing, these sort of things are just constantly pushing forward. So, you know, when they grow up, if they haven't achieved what they want, then, you know, it's maybe I didn't set a good example or maybe I didn't quite teach them, but it sits on them sort of thing. So mm. I'm really keen to set that good example and show them that, you know, like you can do anything you or you're capable of trying to do anything you want, you may not get there because there's always external forces. Like, even on this, I could hit a blizzard that could completely blow all my stuff over. So I think there's a, there's a lot of, it's actually more likely I won't get there than I will get there. Um, but it's about, for me, it's just about giving it a go and trying to yeah. so what's the, to what's the usual do what I can do. And then, what's the usual percentage of that? finishes, people who finish? Um, so I think there's usually about six to ten sort of walkers so there's more bikers that finish than walkers and then there's the skiers who i think very rarely finish but there's a couple of really strong skiers at the moment so i think this will be a year where we see some skiers get across but from the walkers it's usually maybe one a year and it seems to be more likely a veteran that gets there than any of the rookies for the thousand miles so there's a couple of um like there's a guy on this year's who's i think finished six times and then he was going to finish the seventh time but the sea ice broke up Sort of thing. So I'm hoping that we get two finishes at least this year because he's pretty much a certainty of getting there, um, just based on his experience. But yeah, like it's it's a very very low percentage. So you might get one or two people do it a year. Yeah, yeah. Oh well, that's a part of it, right? It's, it wouldn't be extreme adventure if it was something that many people could finish. <laughs> no, so I guess it's kind of alluring a little bit as well, just sort of seeing where they are capable of doing things that sort of most people can't. Um, and like I said, I think there was a time where people just roamed the earth, mm. sort of, you know what I mean? When they talk about the spread of humanity, like people covered more than those distances sort of things throughout, maybe a little bit slower and that sort of thing, but, you know, like we're, at once we were nomadic, so we're capable of it, we just kind of got away from it. Yeah, we got comfortable and we didn't need to anymore. Like, uh, when you actually look back into the history of, like, the possibilities and the abilities that the humans or the, what the humans have had to go through in terms of uh, you know, hunter-gatherer stuff is like we were pretty much just chasing animals down because we had we actually outdured many animals like the, the endurance that humans have to, to just continually going towards something is is incredible but we just don't like you say we just don't see it we're probably not even hitting 30 or 40 percent capacity because as soon as pain and fatigue start to kick in nowadays most people are like oh that's that's enough for me <laughs> yeah, there's no no need. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's like something that I kind of I've always been curious about is just how lazy the body is, essentially. Which is essentially adaptation. Is that you do something that's uncomfortable, and your body just doesn't want to go through that uncomfortable experience again. So the easiest way to avoid it is to adapt. But it's an attempt to get lazier, almost. And then we are inherently lazy sort of thing when something's easy, which is we're not driven to go and get more, which when you look at a lot of the primitive stuff, is kind of, it's kind of counterintuitive because a lot of our neurotransmitters are about seeking. But, you know, now we're just seeking the wrong behaviours, I suppose. Yeah. But, all right. Maybe if I wasn't doing the, the, And the, the whole external work. world's tapped into those behaviours as well and they've utilised them. <laughs> they've, they've looked at them and, they've looked at them and gone, well, okay, what are all these innate kind of things that we have? Food. Sex, sex, and all the uh, you know all the uh, instincts we have, and they've just gone right. We're just going to sell you and bombard you on those things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, people have worked it out, sort of thing. Um, but I think there's a move away from that because you see more and more people talking about that exposure to discomfort. They're talking about going and do more things. I know 
when you look at, I'm not an ultra runner, but I sort of do a little bit of stuff in there. Like there's ultra running is a growing community sort of thing. Well, there's a lot more ultra runners each year. I think this race gets a little bit bigger each year. I don't know if it's going to get too big, but when you look at a lot of these things, people are starting to go out and do a lot more of this stuff. Like you even look at some TV shows now are becoming more and more sort of adventure race or, you know, what can people push their limits to rather than just getting a group of people in a house fighting for three weeks to see what you can get. Yeah. So I think people are starting to move that way, but, you know, as to what percentage of the population is, it's always hard to tell. Yeah. So let's go through, um, like, preparation that you've needed to do for this. So you, you've, you have previously done, you say you've done a shorter version, so you you've already yeah. you know, you've already got some experience in that. When did you actually start planning for this? And then I guess what in terms of like physical stuff have you had to do? Yeah, so I guess to be realistic, my training started when I joined the military. Okay. Um, you know what I mean? Like to build up the volume of training to be able to be on feet for thirty days isn't something that you wake up well, some people can they wake up and go oh, you know what I'm going to go do this maybe they've got a, a good marathon running background or something like that um, cyclists I don't know how long they train for sort of thing so I've been doing a lot of pack marching that sort of stuff just basically through being in the military for a long time so I think it was about 2013 I did the uh, 430 mile Yukon Arctic Ultra and kind of you had to apply to do it and you can do their training camp, but then you had to show some sort of winter racing experience sort of thing. So I just made some stuff up that, about what I'd done through work and being sort of a win- done a few winter courses um, and then went along and kind of did it. So I was sort of on the job of training when I got there as I went through. Um, and then because I'd done that, I applied to do this one and I just asked if I could do the 1,000 mile. Or actually, I'd played it off for a number of years. I didn't think I was ever going to come over and do it just through lifestyle occupation these sort of things but when I sort of left my full-time occupation with the Queensland Reds their rugby team and then started looking after my kids full-time starting my PhD the opportunity was there so I had a look at it and for the three I applied to do a thousand but you have to do the 350 before they'll let you do the thousand mile and you have to do a couple of qualifying races just to prove that you can be self-supported out there because there's the trail's not really marked that well so they drop you off at the start, fire the gun, the checkpoints are there, and then they see you wherever you finish. <laughs> <laughs> there's not a lot of support. So there's a huge scope for people that are underqualified, sort of thing, or not quite confident to run in real problems. So they need to make sure you can do it. So I thought, all right, I'll do the 350. So I had about six months training for that. So I just tried to get a little bit more volume in, went and did it, got there, and then applied for the 1,000 mile on the back of that was able to do it so I trained up for a year and then COVID came in uh, and last year they ran the race out and back so they went out halfway and then came back so I didn't worry about coming over just because of the logistics of it so um, and they allowed foreign races to transfer to this year so I transferred and then did another 12 months worth of training so a lot of that training was sort of trying to get in as much volume on feet as I can based around the limitations I have from injuries and a lot of sort of um, degenerational issues from being in the military for so long for, with, like, with pack marching. So I sort of broke that up into a couple of interval sessions during the week where sort of 
just do intervals because you can do reduced volume but get the same sort of central adaptations as you can with long distance running. And then I'd sort of do one or two longer distance runs and an off-feet session, so on a bike. And then I was mixing it up with trail running, um, mostly because I enjoy trail running rather than just stomping the pavement. And the other thing is because you, when you're running on the trail, it's so uneven and it cuts out a lot of the monotony. So your stride changes a lot, your stride rate changes, your force acceptance sort of qualities change. So there's less monotony when you're running like that. So the chance for the injury is actually less. So when, because when you're running on pavement, it's so monotonous. You're talking about there's so much fatigue at specific points. So for me, it's something that kind of cuts down on the injuries or the risk of injury for me. And I was doing a fair bit of strength work around that. Um, there's benefits to strength work. I just enjoy it, so I made sure that I kept it in there. So I didn't want to lose too much strength for doing too much endurance and then sort of tried doing as much recovery as I could. Then as I got closer to the race about a month ago, I uh, cut out my strength work just to allow that fatigue to dis- dissipate, started dropping my volume, started doing some cold water exposures just in one of the local um, performance centres that was courteous enough to let me use it. So I went in there, started doing... Uh, two by 10 minute sessions a week for the first week and then went to two by 20 and then three by 20 and I started three by 30 and then four by 30 minutes for the last week. Um, mostly just trying to How get fingers. Uh, it was only around about eight or nine degrees sort of thing. So, you know, for toes, 30 minutes for toes and fingers and I was getting a shiver response at around about 12 to 15 minutes, which is what I was after sort of thing. So for what it was, it was the best I could do. So, um, so do you- but I think it really helped with do you try and resist the shiver response or do you allow it to happen? No, I just let it happen. Yeah. So I think from the research I've done, and it's not a lot, I'll be honest, and it's not probably not even research, okay? So just looking at a couple of articles that I've done, um, so I'm starting, starting to get sick of people saying the research, but you know, looking at a couple of articles on it, it's suggested from what I've seen that if you allow the shiver response and that builds up the brown adipose tissue, mm-hmm. which actually creates the adaptation, where if you resist the shivering, that's more of a mental sort yeah. of... Um, yeah. central nervous system control type of thing. So I'm happy with my level of resilience and sort of mental strength. So I was after the shift response because it, for me, that was a specific adaptation that I was after. And it was mainly around blood flow to the periphery. So I was making sure that my feet and hands were submerged the whole time and then sort of uh, doing a few little tasks. And I was actually reading books for a lot of it, um, just because 30 minutes is a long time to sit there doing nothing. Yeah. So it was more, more acclimatization than anything else. Yeah, okay. Um, and I think it sort of worked over here because I can walk around without too many issues other than sort of my face gets a bit cold in the wind. Um, and then so sort of did that little bit more specific stuff. And then while I'm here, I'm sort of getting out, getting around, just exposing myself to the actual environment here. So probably wearing a little bit less layers than what I could, just try and get a bit more of a cold exposure. And then next week we'll kick off and see how it all works out. So, you know, if I'm been fortunate enough to buy myself an extra two to three minutes with gloves off where I'm working with my fingers and that makes everything a little bit easier. And then if I do get into trouble and I've got to work in the cold with exposed skin, then it allows me, you know, a minute can almost be the difference between a survival situation and just solving the problem, you know, when it, especially when you're at sort of minus 30, minus 40 and you need that dexterity so you've got gloves off. So, yeah. you know, it's sort of, it was all for a specific reason. And what about uh, like nutrition and your, your your body mass? Have you uh, tried to come in this with additional um, adipose tissue to give you that you know, extra energy to keep you a little bit warmer, or is that you want to keep the weight down because it's going to be easier to walk? Was there any consideration around that? 
Yeah, so there's always consideration around that. So um, the last couple I've done, I kind of lose about seven to eight kilos, and some of that's just hydration, and a lot of that's sort of it's a combination of what is body mass, sort of fifty percent muscle mass, fifty percent adipose tissue or fat mass. So when I worked up for last year's one, I put on about an extra five or six kilos. Um, and it's a good lifestyle when you're putting on weight. Sort of thing, but, <laughs> but I've got to be careful not to get into habits because they're they're very easy habits to build. Like let's be honest, like those habits um, are very easy to build. Unfortunately, very hard to get rid of. Um, and then I had to delay the race, so I was at about five or six kilos, and I was at a point where I sort of I really didn't want to have to maintain that weight for a year because I just didn't want to reset my body weight. To that sort of thing because it just seems to reset your baseline. Um, I haven't looked into the science too much. It's just sort of something you come across. A bit. So I sort of tried to drop a little bit of weight off and then sit back normal and then sort of put a little bit on sort of quite slowly. But I'm also aware of sort of putting weight on and taking it off, putting it on, taking it off. Because um, it's something that happens throughout my military career just through you know, operations and that sort of stuff. Trying to you lose weight and then you get back to normal. So I'm sort of running, I think around about six or seven kilos heavier now. Um, I notice it when I do my running as my weight's coming on. I just mm-hmm. notice the, the niggles in my knees and these sort of things. So I'll be looking forward to getting it off and actually going back to normal running. It, it does change a few things, especially long distance running. So um, I put that weight on. I'll, I'll lose it quite easily. Then when I go back, I'll, I'll sort of play around with my metabolism a little bit, my hunger states, those sort of things. So I'll just have to make sure I go back to good habits and routines around nutrition. Um, but there are benefits, obviously, because every kilo I put in my body, I don't have to put in my sled sort of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, we used, we used to make jokes when I was in the military about, you know, you're carrying five days worth of food on the man just in sort of body fat. So yeah. um, it, it can help you get out of some, um, you know, if I do get my food wrong, then it'll help me get to the next checkpoint or something like that because, you know, body fat, because I'm moving at such a slow rate, body fat will be my most used fuel source or energy source. So, um and then around the actual nutrition itself, I always get nutrition wrong, but you just don't get enough goes at these sort of things to be able to play around with it because you don't know how you're going to feel after five days without sleeping until you've done five days without sleeping and so you get one shot at it. Um, so I've learned from last time, I've gone away from sort of anything sugary. So a lot of your um, sort of like your bars and those sort of things are just Sugar content's too high for me, so if I do them for a few days, it just sort of it just gets to me. So I've gone away from that, using more sort of uh, coconut oil, a lot more peanut butter, so probably more like a keto sort of thing, jerky, um, that sort of thing, with a little bit of sugars, um, some oats here and there, just to keep some of the carbs in, mm. um, and then some meals. And then it's just sort of being a little bit more disciplined about eating, so making sure that you know even if I'm tired, I still eat because it can come. It can get really easy out there after walking for 20 hours to just go to sleep. Yeah. Sort of thing. So, I was, I, that's know, not just, something I really consider. I, I was Because what popped up in my head is like, this is just be, whenever, whenever I have to go, uh, say if I was just to go camping for a week or something like that, and you just take enough food with you, like on those first few days, I'll probably eat half the food already. And I'm like, oh, where's the rest of the food? Like, But in your case, it might be the opposite. So you're, you're so tired that you don't want to eat, but you've got to force yourself to eat. Yeah, so I always under-eat. And then it's always problematic because if it's in the sled, so when I go to sleep at night or when I sort of start my night routine, so I pull up, um, this time I'll stop probably maybe two to three hours before I'm going to sleep, cook and eat, 
and then I'll move off. I just don't want to sleep where I eat because it just attracts animals. And I just don't want yeah. animals wandering around where I'm sleeping in the middle of nowhere. Um, yeah, like it's, it's a very low probability that'll be an issue, but it's just easy not to take the chance. That was um, one of the questions I was going to ask. Uh, I think they picked it behind you. <laughs> it's like, is there is there much wildlife out in the middle of just uh, you know walking in the snow? Like, what what is it? You usually you say small chance, but if you're going to come across something, it's going to be a bear or something like that. Uh, they're all in hibernation. It is warmer this year, but I don't think they'll come out. Yeah. Um, and I've always asked the question every time I've gone. So when I went to the Yukon, I asked the question when I came here. I sort of asked the question a little bit. Um, but none of the locals seem to care about it. Yeah. Like, they don't care too much. Like, if you don't come between a bear and a cub, or you don't go near a cub, you seem to be fine. And if you don't have food out, you're fine. So, you know, they talk about during the summer, you can't have any food outside of this, anything like that, because it attracts the bear. So I think, you know, from... I don't know whether one will wake up or that sort of thing. Like you, you can never know what really going on in nature. It seems to sort of throw some oddity at you every now and then. Um, but there are wolves around, and again, you talk to the locals, and the wolves are very skittish around people. They won't actually come near people, mm. but that won't stop them from coming in to have a sniff if they smell food, sort yeah. of thing. And then, you know, there's not much else. Probably the moose are the most dangerous thing, um, just because they're they can be aggressive when they want to. So. You know, you can't move them off the trail if they're on it. You sort of just got to play by their rules. So, you know, apparently their knee swivel is 360 degrees. So they like to give you a couple of good kicks, get you on the ground and stomp on you. So that's probably the biggest threat. Okay. Uh, but that's mostly moving. So if you come across one, you just sort of got to go back a little bit of a distance and then just wait till it moves off, yeah. which apparently could be two, two to three hours. So <laughs> I was with that cooking in that case <laughs> attracted to you start cooking and attract the uh, the wolves to you as well move the moose along for me but you know everything's a hassle though it's like to stop and cook that's a hassle you know if you get food out of your pulp you've got to put it in your internal layers because everything's frozen so you've got foods that are frozen and then trying to eat half frozen foods a hassle like it's just sort of it's, it's very easy to put things in the too hard basket, but you know, any, if you're not, if you do that, you're not disciplined about what you're doing. Then you're just going to degrade faster, and then you're going to get lazier, and then before you know it, you're sort of going to lose cognition, and a problem will spring up without realising, and then you get yourself into trouble. So um, this time, usually haven't had any problems, but this time I just to make sure I'm a little bit more aware of it because after about day 15 or 16, then your risk factor for making these simple mistakes goes up. Hmm. You know, and you've only just sort of got to leave half your ear exposed or something like that in the wind and you lose a big chunk of skin or something like that, you know. So fatigue's probably the biggest risk. So, yep. you know, if I'm not sleeping, then I've got to make sure the nutrition is still going in so I can maintain that energy. What about things like um, like uh, delusion and hallucinations from lack of sleep? Is that something that will occur and you just have to, to endure it or is it something that might occur? It will occur. So it's sort of, it's happened on the last few ones. Nothing too bad. I don't get really big hallucinations, um, just sort of minor stuff. So like the last time I was walking along, it was about night six. So I was like a decent way into it. I think it was about one o'clock in the morning. And I was walking through um, between these pines. Like it was just a really long straight trail and the sort of snow was probably about waist high. And at one point it just felt like I was walking along a big white hallway sort of thing. So I was like, the walls went forever. And then I sort of came out of that for a little bit. And then as the shadows moved around in the trees, it was almost like I could see people moving in the shadows. And then further up at the end, there was two palm or two sort of uh, pine trees that were about my height or human height. 
And for some reason, I thought one was a police officer and one was a fireman. So, you know, I think how I was going as I walked past, and I sort of just laughed at myself and kept walking. Um, but I don't really see anything big. Like, it wasn't a clear picture of this person sort of thing. It was just, I think, the shape of the leaves looked like those hats or something. And it was just sort of like a, a very vague-ish thought for a second. Just creates a story, um, and your, your, mind just goes, yeah. your mind just goes with the story because you're tired and probably wanted to entertain yeah. yourself. <laughs> Yeah, and like because the, the visual stimulus is so monotonous at times as well. It's kind of just a little bit of that sort of half sleep-like state where you kind of, you know, just not quite filtering the information properly. Yeah, and in terms of, uh, I guess, um, like you, how far you actually can see, that's just going to be dependent on the weather, uh, the, the time of day, and things like that. There's going to be points where you might might come across a small blizzard, and you might not even be able to see a few meters in front of you, and in times where you'll be able to see the whole you know, horizon or uh, yeah, so um, I sort of can mostly base it off the experience that I've had so far. So, um, like at night, when I was here last time going across the Alaskan range or through the pass, uh, there was a really strong headwind. So, heads down for most of the time. So, you look at meters ahead. In those conditions, you're only sort of looking a few metres ahead. And last time I actually missed a turn in the trail, which I had to come back to. Um, and then you have days, or actually that afternoon, it was like beautiful clear skies and I could see, you know, 12 miles up the valley. So I could actually see the pass I was going to from the bottom of the valley, um, thankfully, because as the conditions turned to shit, I actually knew where I was supposed to be heading. Um, so, you know, you have days where it's snowing and you see 100 metres or 200 metres um, but just because it undulates so much as well, you sort of restricted by terrain a little bit, mm. bends and that sort of thing. So um, I don't know. Sometimes I think it's kind of good not to be able to see too far because you're just looking at small parts ahead of you, you know, just yeah. go to the next corner, over the next hill, that sort of thing. Uh, and then at night, it's sort of the torch I've got, I think will go out to about 100 metres on high sort of beam or down to about 25 or 30. But for battery conservation, it's sort of usually on low unless... Unless I see a lot of moose footprints in the snow in front of me, then it's on high just so I don't come around a corner and get surprised by that. I want to see as far as I can if I think there's one of those in front of me somewhere. So what's your, what's your main means of navigation? Um, so the, most of the trail, once you get to a certain point, the trail is fairly easy to follow. So like after a certain point, it's the main way from the transit to and from villages. And they sort of will go out, they go along in snow machines all the time. But as you we sort of at the start point, there's a number of different trails, so it's kind of hard to work out which one to be on for the most efficient path. So I've got actual track of, or GPS track of the trail. Um, so like they don't give it to you, but if you do a little bit of research, they're not hard to find. And there's a few people that have done it before that sort of provide the GPS track. So I've loaded that up. So follow that. Um, and then like the trail itself is probably compressed about a foot below the snow level. And it's kind of just compre- really hard compressed snow. So if that freezes up, then it's nice and hard. If there's a lot of snow, then it can sort of get quite soft and it can almost get to the same height as the actual snow around it. Um, but you can still see where it runs. So last year I was crossing uh, a series of lakes and couldn't see the trail, but looking ahead, you could kind of make out the lines where it was cutting. So if you started looking about 100 to 200 metres ahead, you could see sort of the lines here and there to follow. Um, and I was just checking my GPS every now and then to make sure that I was heading in the, the right direction roughly. Um, you know, but when you come off trail, because the snow was that deep last year, if you came off, you just went down to your knee in snow. So it's kind of a bit like bumper bowling at stages where you know, you're on 
hard ground, hard ground, up to your knee, and then you sort of reset yourself and keep going. Um, but generally, it's not too hard to follow. And then further north, there's a lot of markers as mm. well. So there's sort of like um, poles that set up in like a, a tripole type of thing with a marker on it. So you can see those. Ideally, they're set up so you can see them in a blizzard, but they're sort of set up every so far. And there's reflective markers for a lot of it as well because they do run a couple of events on certain parts of the trail. So um, the navigation's not really something that I'm too worried about. It's just kind of avoiding too much of the overflow early on so I don't get sort of too slowed up by being or get wet or anything like that and then once it gets cold then it's kind of pretty easy yeah cool um so we'll wrap up with a couple couple of last questions uh the first yep. one Lee obviously you've only got a week left now or less than a week to until you actually get going what's the main thing that's running through your mind at the moment um uh, I try and keep myself busy because I know if an idle mind will go through a whole heap of random thoughts and it likes to catastrophize and think about all the things you should be worried about. Um, and I get that process. So I try and keep busy. So I've got a list of things that I need to get, um, which I've mostly done now. So it's sort of making sure that I've got everything and then trying to work out how to pack it all properly. So that kind of keeps me busy um, thinking about, you know, if this happens, what am I do? I'm going to do these sort of things. So going through a bit of contingency planning, um, every now and then you'll sort of have some thoughts about, yeah, this this could be a really bad idea. What are you doing? You know, let's just get back on the plane. <laughs> but I don't worry about that too much. Because I if I were left, the regret would live with me for a long time. Yeah. Sort of thing. So um, it's kind of just the getting through that anticipation period because the anticipation is always the worst. I, I know come Sunday morning when we're getting our gear and I get on the bus and I'm riding the bus over there, I'll start to think about how bad an idea this is. Yeah. Um, but then when you start going, you're perfectly fine sort of thing. So, you know, I anticipate that, I'm not too worried about it, but it's just trying to keep busy. And I've got a few sort of things to try and get ahead on so I don't lose out on too much of the work I'm supposed to be doing over the next four weeks instead of walking around the wilderness. So, um, yeah, it's just kind of keep myself busy and not worry too much about yeah, okay. things. Then having a look around Anchorage while I'm here. Yep, explore a little bit and just enjoy as a tourist yeah. days. Cool. So, <laughs> yeah. I, I guess uh, final final question is: is like, have you? Is there any like mental anchors that you have like to try and keep you going to the end point, like, or to make sure that you really do push yourself? Is there, you know, like you want to if you complete this you want to celebrate by x y and z or you you want if you, you know you get to a certain point um what's going to keep you going yeah i've never really used any sort of reward system like that um like i don't know why it's just never really been something that i've worried about too much but i think that's the fact that i've kept a lot of my goals aligned to my values yep sort of thing so i've picked things not carefully, but the things that I've been interested in are aligned to something more intrinsic that I'm motivated towards. So, you know, if I get there, I'll just be happy in the fact that I got there. So I think for me, knowing that I could do it is enough. Like I don't have to go out and reward myself with anything. Um, I guess getting through difficult things, one of the biggest tricks I've used for a long time is kind of having short horizons or short goals. So I'll go meal to meal, day to day, sort of thing, just get through one day, because I kind of look at if I get through the first day, I sleep, I get up, then I can get through the next three days. If I get through the next three days, I can get through the next 10. If I can get through 10, I can get through four weeks, sort of thing. Because after a while, your days become repetitive and then you just become familiar with that. So it's kind of looking at that. And I've just, I've, I've never really 
allowed myself to quit anything for no legitimate reason. Like I've always thought that quitting is almost like a cognitive cancer that once you start to quit, it becomes an option in the future. So if you just never quit, then it's never an option. But in saying that, that's a big difference between being injured, you know, and trying to prove something. But, you know, it's just, if I don't have, if there's no legitimate reason why I can't go on, then I'll go on to the thing. So, you know, I'm careful about how I say that to people because, you know, there's a point where it becomes dangerous to go on. Like if I become so delirious to the point where I'm having real cognitive issues, then, you know, I can get to a point where at night, if I'm not aware, I can walk into overflow or I can walk off the track or, you know, I mean, like it becomes the problem. So I've just got to make sure that I, I maintain that. And if I get to a point where I've degenerated so bad I can't go on, then I need to be serious about it. But, you know, if, if it's just a discomfort thing, then I'm still going. Yeah. So it's the... That's where the, you know, the the risk and the contingency plans and just knowing, uh, okay, just having to really assess in the moment, like, is this life or death? Is this, like, going to disrupt my rest of my future and the rest of my life? Or is it literally just my mind is telling me to pack up and go? It's, uh, it's, it, it's just making outweighing those decisions in the moment. Which yeah, comes, I guess people that haven't... Comes from the years of experience of, that you've had from, you know, throughout your career. Yeah, and because I've never, I haven't tied anything to it. Like if there was like a, an ego or an identity, or there was something that was tied to it, then that would probably push me to try and prove something. But I haven't really tied anything to it. So, so you know, if I don't get there, I'll, and I want to get there, then I'll do it again. Like yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. really that big deal. Like if I, yeah. for me, it's not really far. It's just I didn't get there. This guy, if I don't get there, so you know, cool. I'll come back and do it if I want to. If I realise that it's not for me, I won't. You know what I mean? Like, there's no... I won't walk away as a as being a, a different person in any way if I don't get there. Yeah. And if I do that, I won't walk away being a different person in any way. It'll just be something else. That, another really interesting journey through my life that yeah, yeah, probably yeah. had a lot of memorable moments in it. Um, yeah. You know, I, you probably walk away stronger for it and having more experience and, you know, enjoying things a little bit differently. But, you know, as far as who I am I don't think it'll change too much like I'm certainly not out here to find myself yeah <laughs> <laughs> cool well I um, I wish you all the success success and you don't get any of those uh, you know, major issues that come on and uh, you know, you're obviously well prepared for it and that it's uh it's an inspiring journey to, to, to watch. I know that you're you're not doing it for that, but it is. It's that's why I wanted to have this conversation because it's 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 great to see people try to go for these sort of feats, and um, you know it motivates me to think what the hell am I doing with my life or what could I be doing with my life. So I, I appreciate you taking the time today to to chat a bit more about it. Um, yeah, no, it's a pleasure. So that's one of the reasons why I've actually made a little bit more. Um, awareness around this. So most of the things I've done in the past, I just went and did. Like yeah. I've never said anything. I've never had any profile or anything like that. But I guess it's a little bit more about just showing people, you know, what are you capable of? Um, you know, and if you look back to my past, it, I wasn't an athlete in high school. You know, I didn't get good grades or anything like that. So it was just, you know, like I said before, it doesn't really matter where you are or where or what you've got around you. It's what you sort of are willing to do sort of thing or what you're willing to pursue um, sort of thing. So a lot of it is around just kind of inspiration a little bit but more just showing people you know what there's you can achieve a lot more you just gotta go out 
and have the courage to do what you want to do. You know, it's not necessarily adventure racing or ultra racing, whatever it is. You know, people, I think, are selling themselves short. So, mm. you know, anything I can do to help that, I'm certainly happy for because I think humanity as a race is underachieving at the moment by a massive amount. Yeah, and it's such a great thing to, to show people if you've got the... Uh, um you know, the mindset, resilience, and the, the the will to just do that for people. It's a way to bring everyone, rise rise people up to to a, to a high level standard, which is, I guess, it's it's just a giving thing to do. So, awesome! Thank you very much for, for again for the chat today. Is there uh, is there actually like, like are you, are there any charity or anything like that? That um, uh, yes, yeah, so I've I've got a donation page to the uh, Children's Hospital Foundation. Sort of things. I've been raising money for them, so uh, I can give you some links to that. Mm, yeah, sort of I'll put in the show notes and stuff like that. So if anyone wants to donate, I think uh, you know, jump on there. I'll I'll, I'll definitely jump on and, and make some donations myself. So, um, cool. Thanks, Dan. I've learned. Uh, I've enjoyed the conversations. I think every time we 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 could have a conversation, we can go on for hours and hours. And I, I look forward to to having another one when you when you when you finished in thirty days. <laughs> yeah, I'll give you a week or so to recover. Um, nah, in your own time, mate. In your own time. <laughs> I could be a complete mess by then, but I'll not want to talk to me. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure to have it. I always enjoy them as well. All right, buddy. See you, mate. No problems, mate. See ya.